Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Sirwan Kajo. Sirwan is a Washington-based journalist and researcher focusing on Kurdish politics, Islamic militancy, extremism, and conflict in the Middle East and beyond. His debut novel, Nothing But Soot, about a 20-something Kurdish man whose quest for a permanent home never ends, was published in 2015. He arrived back in Washington from Iraqi Kurdistan just a few days ago, and I'm delighted to have you back on the podcast, Sirwan. Thank you, Bill. It's so good to be back. Before we get into detail on some of the stories you're working on, let me ask you about your overall impression. It's some years since I've been there, but back then the issues were about corruption, lack of secure electricity and clean drinking water, poor health care facilities, a feeling from ordinary people that we talked to that the government really did not have their interests at heart. I wonder, has much changed? Well, some of these uh, issues um, are still there. People complain about lack of services in many parts of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. Although right now you go to Erbil, uh, the capital city, and you see two cities, basically. One that has been supported, modern-looking city with uh, high-rise buildings and um, and a growing expat community. And on the other hand, you see different places where the local population still lives in uh, poverty. It's uh, it's important to note, Bill, that the, the vast majority of people in Iraqi Kurdistan relies on the government for, um, you know, for their salaries. And uh, with the tensions between Erbil and Baghdad, the central government, a lot of people have been, you know, suffering from from that in, in the sense that they don't get paid on time, which creates more and more problems on a daily basis for people. So you you go to Kurdistan, you see, essentially, you see two different um, populations. The haves and the have nots, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's a there is a growing division between the two uh, communities, um, so to speak. And so this creates more and more social uh, tensions. Well, let's look at uh, you mentioned it, those tensions between Erbil and Baghdad, and they're primarily over oil, oil revenues. What is the story there? What's the current situation? How much animosity is is at play? So back in February 2022, almost a year ago, the Supreme Court in Baghdad made a decision saying that the oil and gas law in the Kurdistan region of Iraq was unconstitutional. This has caused a lot of problems between uh, the two sides, the regional government and the central government um, with regards to oil sales. And the Iraqi government believes that oil revenues made by the KRG by exporting them and you know into global markets is illegal. Therefore, um, the Iraqi government should stop that. And uh, since then, there's been uh, many meetings. Many Kurdish delegations have visited Baghdad uh, over the past few months, and um, nothing has really come out of those meetings because there is something more important, mistrust. The two sides do not trust uh, each other. Historically, in the past 20 years, there's been many issues over, many problems over um, this very particular issue. 
and the budget issue that, um, you know, Bill, um, according to according to the Iraqi constitution, the uh, regional government in Kurdistan gets 17 percent of, of the national budget. Was that uh, 17, 17 percent? 17. But the Iraqi government right now argues that that shouldn't be uh, the case anymore since the KRG sells oil on its own and therefore there must be a change in in the way the two governments work with um what 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 ends up happening is that this is from the Iraqi government perspective of course the KRG sells its oil to into global market without resending revenues to Baghdad and Baghdad says we're not allowed to redistribute that budget based on the 70% um, agreement that we've had over the past 20 years. And um, this has caused more and more tensions between the two sides. Of course, it didn't start last year. It's been an ongoing issue since 2003 following the US invasion. And so, like I said, this is based on historical problems between the two sides. That's why I don't anticipate any breakthroughs in the ongoing talks between Baghdad and Erbil over oil revenues and other issues, other outstanding issues that I believe reflect on how the two governments talk to each other. Well, that level of of mistrust, as you say, it can only be compounded uh, over this uh, argument about uh, oil revenues. And no real solution in sight. Uh, meanwhile, the government, of, of, uh, central government, is is in a mess. Uh, how how does uh, Erbil look at that situation? Do they say, well, you know, we're not in the same mess you are, so we're just going to sail our own boat here? Well, yeah, Kurdistan, the the KRG, the Kurdish region, the Kurdistan regional government believes that it has the right as an autonomous federal region within Iraq has the right to sell oil on its own. Uh, and it's been doing so since essentially since 2005. But the Iraqi government is not happy with it because, like I said, they say, well, if you get if you're getting 17 percent of the national budget, that's the KRG share of the national budget, then we should have the right to all the sale, all the oil revenues that you make. Um, this is something that the KRG does not want to give up uh, because they believe that it will mess with the federal uh, arrangement they've, they've created over the past two decades. And, you know, like federalism is enshrined in the Iraqi constitution, but in reality, it's really uh, the Kurdistan region that enjoys that level of federalism. You mean it works for the KRG? And, and and that's how its relationship with Baghdad has been shaped over the years. What the Kurds argue is that all oil sales has been a problem not only in the Kurdish region, but also in the south, in Basra and other places uh, where political uh, elites in different places control oil revenues. So the Kurds argues that at least what we have is something that has been enshrined in the Iraqi constitution. What we lack as Iraqis is a national policy with regards to oil revenues. The Kurds say and believe that what the Iraqi government is asking 
of them is not uh, something uh, related to law um, as much as it is a political tool that the Iraqi government uses to undermine the uh, the autonomy of, of Kurdistan. Yes, and, and, and within uh, Kurdistan, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, the tensions between the two families remain. That's the Barzanis and the Talibanis. Now, for listeners who may not be familiar with the families, and uh, it is fair to say they operate in some ways like traditional mafia families, give us a snapshot of the Barzanis and the Talibanis and, and what the current situation is uh, between them. So, in reality, Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, is divided into two zones. One that is controlled by the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, led by the Talibani family, and the other led by the Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, which is led by the Barzani family. And this has been ongoing for generations. It was, um, you know, back in 2005, the two sides, you know, got together with the help of Americans and other to create a unified administration in, in, in the Kurdistan region. Uh, before then, uh, from the mid 90s, from early 90s, all the way to 2005, there were two different administrations in the Kurdish region. But even with that agreement, the reality of the situation is that the Kurdish region is divided, maybe not necessarily equally uh, between the two sides, but it's there and you see the green zone, the, the, the PUK zone in Suleimania and its surrounding, and the yellow zone, that's the KDP zone in Erbil and Duhok and other parts of, uh, of Kurdistan. Now that has increased, that tensions between the two sides have increased uh, tremendously in the past few months because the, uh, the KDP, that's the Barzani ruled party, believes that the PUK is not as powerful as it once was. Therefore, their arrangement needs to change. Back in 2005, when they uh, signed that power sharing agreement, they call it the strategic you know, partnership, that, that was when PUK was much more powerful uh, and had more votes in regional and national elections. And um, this is, the, the situation has, of course, changed. The PUK is much more divided than it once was. And uh, the KDP, that's the ruling party, feels that that arrangement should also reflect the current realities. And these uh, two families, uh, the Barzanis running the KDP out of Erbil, and the Talibanis, uh, whose center of power is in Sulmania in the south, uh, is it correct to say that they still divide the spoils pretty much amongst themselves? That has been the case for the past few um, decades. Uh, the K KDP feels that, you know, they were the one who uh, spearheaded the revolution against the former regime of Saddam Hussein. Um, the uh, PUK feels the same way. It's a former leader, Jalal Talabani, who was the first democratically elected president of Iraq after 2003, uh, feel that they are the legit here of that legacy and therefore they should remain in power. They feel entitled to what they've gained over the years, although uh, both sides don't uh, necessarily adhere to democratic principles. Uh, one of the issues, one of the outstanding issues in, in, in the Iraqi Kurdistan region right now is 
uh, election. Election were supposed to happen last year in 2022, but the two sides and by extension their members in the regional parliament have decided to postpone it to this year. Now there isn't a set date for elections, but it's uh, most likely it's going to take uh, place um, at the end of uh, 2023. This shows how fragile the situation has been in the Kurdistan region, that democratic experiment that the West once thought would be an example for post-2003 Iraq. It has, um, you know, demonstrated how, you know, things could change swiftly in a in a volatile region. Mm, yeah, and, and the thing I wanted to, to ask you about, too, and one of the stories you're working on is uh, these efforts by the United States uh, to unite the Peshmerga, um, how that effort is faring given these internal tensions. But but before you explain that, just remind our listeners about the Peshmerga so Peshmerga as a force uh, is deemed as a sacred uh, group in the Kurdish community. They've uh, been a resistant force over the years against successive Iraqi governments and regimes. And uh, after 2003, they were included in the defense system of Iraq. And according to the Iraqi constitution, Peshmerga are now part of the Iraqi defense forces. Um, given their role, historic role in the resistance movement. Now, we're talking about two different Peshmerga forces. One that is part of the KDB and one affiliated with the PUK. There's been many efforts by different sides, including the two political parties themselves, to unify these groups. And when back in 2005, um, the government, the KRG, um, decided to establish a Peshmerga ministry to administer the affairs of these forces. Some units were unified, they were brought together. During the war on ISIS, the Peshmerga forces, um, respectively, the PUK and, and KDP forces, played a vital role in countering ISIS. Uh, but now that the situation has been relatively calm, the Americans and the US-led coalition in general believe that um, it's time to turn this fighting force into a professional defense force for uh, for the region. The Americans generally believe that this time they have a real shot at unifying the uh, the two sides by creating new divisions within within the Peshmerga uh, forces, something that the, uh, the the local forces have not had. So you have different battalions working under different commands, but what the Americans are um, trying to do is bringing them uh, together, establish more unified divisions that will allow them to be uh, at some point a professional force. And, and how is that progressing, uh, Sidwan? Yeah, it's very complicated. Um, there's so many uh, problems because there's still like even these groups that have come together and at some point they will announce the, the unification of several divisions. Um, they still have a lot of problems. Um, you know, both sides, the KDP and PUK, use this as a bargain chip uh, against each other. Obviously, the Americans don't want this force to be a political force. They want it to be an independent, apolitical force that will defend uh, the region against uh, ISIS and other opposing forces. Um, but 
unfortunately, the reality is that even some leaders within the Peshmerga forces have political uh, allegiances to to the KDP and PUK, which makes the unification process uh, much more complicated. Mm, yeah, and that question of trust comes right back again, doesn't it? Exactly, and 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 this is an ongoing issue in Kurdistan. Now, Americans are optimistic. Um, they believe that they, you know they've been working with these guys for you know since 2000 and effectively since 2014 with the um, rise of ISIS, they've built um, a level of trust between the two sides. And um, I personally, from my observation, I was embedded with the U.S. military and I felt that there's a genuine belief among um, the forces uh, that this time around they need to put their differences aside and uh, focus on creating something more sustainable for, for the region. Now, another story that you're working on is uh, refugees, Syrian refugees, IDPs from other regions of Iraq, internally displaced persons. How are those people faring in the current economic and political climate, which is tense and not very good? So um, there are currently uh, about 260,000 Syrian refugees, mostly Kurds in, in, in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, who have come to the region due to conflict in Syria. Uh, over the past decade or so. Um, there are also a large number of uh, internally displaced people from other parts of uh, Iraq. To a certain point, they were doing much better compared to um, you know, IDPs and Syrian refugees in other parts of the Middle East. Uh, but with the, um, with the deteriorating economic uh, situation in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, more and more people are looking for other uh, alternatives. I spoke with a lot of Syrian refugees when I was there. And one common thing that I heard uh, over and over was, you know, migrating to Europe. Um, in fact, uh, something is happening right now, which I thought was interesting. Um, a lot of uh, male householders in these um, refugee families leave for Europe, creating a, a, another issue for, for their families they leave behind. I went to a refugee camp just outside of Erbil and uh, spoke with some uh, women whose husband have uh, left for Europe in the past few months. And um, this has uh, created a social um, problem for these families. Women can't work inside camps and they can't leave the camp and they have kids to uh, care for. You know, family reunions take a long time. In, in recent months, a lot of refugees left and they're waiting for, you know, they've applied for asylum in Germany and other parts of US, Western Europe. Um, but the wait time for um, for this, uh, you know, reunions, family, family reunions take uh, much longer than it once did at the peak of the, um, you know, refugee crisis in 2015. Uh, and so this has created another problem for refugees and IDPs in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. They're, they're not doing well, to be honest with you. Most of the humanitarian organizations, including UN organizations that once provided support for these families, have stopped uh, just because the conflict in Syria and other parts of Iraq has been ongoing for a long time. So a lot of you know resources have been uh, shrinking. And, and families, um, refugee families, are looking for 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 other alternatives to to support themselves. One primarily uh, goal is for them to get out of there and go to Europe. Mm -hmm. And and the level of uh, of 
poverty that you saw in those camps? I mean, how would you describe it? Well, poverty is um, is becoming uh, a major issue even outside of camps in Iraqi Kurdistan. And so uh, it, it makes it even more uh complicated inside camps just because, you know, these are vulnerable communities uh, they like, uh, they don't have many resources. And um, it's just that the, the, the Kurdistan regional government has almost exhausted all the resources it once had, um, you know, in the early years of the conflict. So um, it's uh, many, many of these, uh, fam- many of these um, refugee camps are turning into big cities. Um, you know, I went to two of them and you see um, shops and stores. It's interesting that even in one camp just outside Erbil, uh, locals were actually allowed to go inside the camp and buy their grocery and their, you know, things from inside the, the camp, which I thought was a brilliant idea because it supports both sides. The refugees get to, you know, generate some uh, income. Uh, it supports the local economy and it helps interaction between um, the local population and the refugee population. But is there a level at which people start to resent the refugees and the IDPs? Yeah, I heard in, in, in Erbil and elsewhere in the region that, you know, refugees tend to work for cheap or cheaper, uh, which, um, you know, creates yet another layer of, uh, uh, of tensions between uh, the local population and refugees. But for the most part, the, the, the Iraqi Kurdish population has been welcoming, uh, especially to, uh, to uh, the Syrian Kurdish refugee population. The Syrian Kurdish community has been um, very effective in terms of in, in, in the service sector. So you go to hotels, restaurants and other places. You see a lot of Syrians and Syrian Kurdish refugees working in those places. And, um, you know, you go to Erbil, you see many, uh, you know, growing Syrian population in those uh, in those sectors. Um, but of course, because the economic situation is not well, a lot of local Kurds, Iraqi Kurds, feel that these people are taking their jobs away from them. You 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 hear both sides of uh, of the argument. You you have some that say, well, these are our brothers, we should support them, uh, and and they've brought a lot of um, you know opportunities themselves to to the region. And you hear others who complain about um, you know refugees taking their jobs from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now I want to move on then to Turkey. The Turks loom large in the region. Bring us up to date on what they are up to, bearing in mind that President Erdogan is facing an election in just a few months. Do you think he will use the Kurds as a diversionary tactic to steer voters away from his domestic record, which, quite frankly, in regards to the economy and his handling of it, is not good at all? Are the Kurds going to become kind of the way in which he deflects from his very serious economic problems? So um, it's always been the case. Um, every time there's an election in Turkey, um, the AKP and Recep Tayyip Erdogan have used the Kurdish card to, you know, pass their agenda. And this is something that has unified the Islamists and the nationalists in in, in Turkey. So uh, we've heard in the past few months, you know, efforts by the Turkish government to uh, carry out a new offensive against the Syrian Kurds. In, in, in northern Syria, uh, there's been an ongoing operation against the elements of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, in, um, in, uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan. 
Um, you know, they have some bases in the Kandil Mountains uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan. So uh, this has always been an, an ongoing issue uh, and uh, during election times in, in Turkey. Right now, there are efforts to shut down the main pro-Kurdish HDP uh, party in uh, inside Turkey in an attempt to uh, sway Kurdish votes uh, in favor of the uh, of the ruling party, the um, the AKP, uh, AKP. So there's uh, the Kurdish uh, card has always been the one used by Erdogan and his allies to trump up support um, at, at the national level. But Erdogan has has more options outside uh, his borders. You know, every time something happens domestically, he uses um, the Kurdish cards in Syria and, and, and elsewhere uh, to uh, garner more and more support domestically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he is, as you said, hitting uh, PKK targets that are in Iraqi Kurdistan. Yeah, so this has been uh, ongoing for um, for a while now. The Turkish government believes that attacks coming from uh, Iraqi Kurdistan are carried out by uh, PKK elements um, in in the Kandil mountain. And that's why they've been carrying out these targeted strikes against uh, their bases in uh, in parts of uh, in parts of Iraqi Kurdistan. It feels like the uh, the Kurdistan regional government um, and I should note that um, Turkey is a major trade partner of the uh, KDP, the ruling party in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, it seems that um, they've given the, the the green light to Turkey to uh, to carry out these attacks inside Iraqi Kurdish territory. Mm, interesting. Now, now, final thought: as you came away from uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. When you go back next, do you think that much will have changed? And if it has, will it have changed for the better or for the worse? Yes and no. Every time I go there, and I go there once a year, I see something new. I see I, I see more and more investment in, in urban centers, including Erbil and Suleimania. But at the same time, I see more poverty in other parts of the uh, of the Kurdistan region. And I see uh, more journalists being targeted. While I was there, at least two journalists were um, arrested for um, simply posting critical opinions on Facebook. So the uh, that margin of uh, freedoms is shrinking, unfortunately, in Iraqi Kurdistan. The um, we keep talking about services, but also this is a big problem. Um, the infrastructure in Kurdistan is uh, still developing. So every time I go. There's something new. There's a new tunnel, a new highway um, opening in, in Erbil or connecting Erbil to other cities in, in the north. But also, um, you know, more and more uh, complaints from the local population about um, electricity, about salaries, about many other essential needs um, uh, for people. So um, when I see these changes, I don't, you know, I don't feel like... Um, you know the region is heading in the in the right direction. Hopefully, following the election with the formation of a new regional government, things will improve for uh, for the people. Mm. Interesting, the point you make about journalists and the pressure on journalists and the arrests. Uh, unfortunately, we're seeing that uh, all too frequently. Uh, well, throughout the region and and elsewhere, really globally, it's it's a major concern. 
but you're back in Washington, so back safe and sound. And and I and I thank you, Sirawan, for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Bill. This was fun. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Kurdish journalist and researcher Sirwan Kajo. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 120,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Sirwan. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.